Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Guy, how are you? Yeah, well, I'm all right. I've been out and about in the old town in, I can't remember which lap, which... Um, Baltic state we're in today. We're in Latvia. <laughs> we're in Latvia. Another in day, La- another day, another Baltic state. We're in Riga. Oh, we're in Riga, yes, which is in Latvia. Yeah, and, and I feel really bad about this because I don't know whether until I saw the tour schedule a few months ago that I even knew of Riga. No, it's a very beautiful old town. I've already been out and about. Yeah, um, and it's quite funky as well. There's a lot of really cool people around. You know, Do you know what's interesting now? is unlike touring in the old days... You can get an Haute Cortado anywhere. You can. You can, and you can, get, and you can get there by scooter. And you can get there by scooter. But I, listen, I'm really keen to talk to Brian Adams about life on the road, because he seems to spend half his life on the road. And yeah, I've just been... That, I really want to talk about that, because I've just looked at it, because he really does do, like, three weeks off, three weeks on, a month on, a month off. Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary. And just the change that's gone on, because, you know, we're the same age. He's been doing it for roughly the same time. He's hugely successful. I mean, you know, he's sold about 100 million albums. He's had Oscar nominations and everything. What's extraordinary is he's actually got a CV as a photographer, which any photographer would be happy to have. Do you know what I mean? It's like that that would do just fine as a career. He took a picture of the Queen. He did. He's and a renowned uh, book. He's, he's photographed everyone from Amy Winehouse to, and then his fantastic books on, like, you know, war veterans and. And also. And then all his campaigning. And it's. Yeah. It's, it's, he's an activist, right? As well. He but, is very much. You know, activist. we need to get back to his roots. We need to find out about the real Brian Adams and what drives him. Oh, you no, know, but I was going to say, because all the interviews that I've heard, you know, in our usual endless research, is, um, does seem very skimmy. And I do think there's not a lot about the early days, which I, I do think we should delve into. Well, let's unskim the Adams. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. It's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Good morning. Yay! Good morning. Brian. Hey, uh, all right? Yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you fine. Can we get your visuals? Hang on, how do I do this? Start video. There you go. Oh. oh, wow, man. You're looking great. Yeah. Fabulous. Are How you are in Glasgow, you? Brian, or have you gone home for the night? Yeah, I'm Glasgow. Cool. Well, you're obviously in a... a, a the, the art on your walls is a lot better than the art here in Riga. We're on tour as well. We're in Latvia. We've got a little... Fo- I've got a little photograph hanging here. and Guy's got nothing behind I've him. I've got nothing. I've got... I've got a, yeah, this is pure Soviet-era recreated hotel room. 
Looks like a squalid Ian. Where are you? A squal- <laughs> squal- no, no, we're in Riga, in Latvia. Oh, you're both in Riga? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we're on yeah, tour we're, together. We're on tour yeah. together. We play with Nick Mason. Yeah, yeah, Nick, I knew that. Yeah, Nick yeah Mason's I didn't realize that. Yeah. And we're on a God. nine-week European tour. And actually, this is quite a good start, really. You know, you, you spend so much time on the road. I know how it feels for us. Nine weeks feels extremely daunting. And for, I think if you've got kids especially, you know, that's... That's because I love being on stage, but it's the being away from home that's the hardest part, I think. It is tough. Also, it's nice to get away as, as well. <laughs> there is that. But because, Brian, you have this, look at, because it's, it's, you know, you've often said you like to do this thing of, of being kind of a bit on the road, bit off, bit on the road, bit on the road. And we're looking at your dates, and you really are. You really are. You do like three weeks on, three weeks off, three, and it's, it's like that's forever, right? It seems. Yeah. Two weeks on. Like do two sets of weekends and then and then go back home. Does that mean you have like a crew permanently sort of fired up and ready to go? Well, it means that I pay for a lot more airline flights, <laughs> but it's, at the same time, I think I get a better quality of life because I'm not just out in the squalid ends of the world yeah. all the time. And there's only so much beige that a man can handle. <laughs> so, so does do the crew and the rest of your band? Do they all go home or do they wait somewhere oh. on the road for you? Everyone goes home, and, and so everybody has a life. But because I think it's the being on stage bit we love, isn't it? Do you have though over the years have you developed a kind of world that keeps you sane? So are there sort of elements of of things that you 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 travel with or people that you travel with that make it seem more normal for you, more homely? Yeah, I, well, I think. Well, I hang on a sec. Someone's calling me here. Hello. The fire alarm's going off at 12.30. Okay, thanks for <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, great. Well, we'll try to be done before the fire alarm goes off. That's yeah, usually... Yeah. A... Is that your way of getting interviews ended? You have some, call me and say the fire alarm is going to go off. <laughs> exactly right, yeah. But do, do you have a world that, that makes you feel happier that you, you've, you've built um, up? I think I, I've got to say that uh, because I've had the same team such a long time, that we all sort of prescribe to the same thing you know we we like to we all like to go home and i remember uh, when i first started doing it um or saying that i wanted to do it, my management was like everyone's going to leave you no one's going to stay on tour you're just going to have a skeleton you forget it it's not going to work one guy left and that was 20 when did we start i started doing this in 2000 so what are you know, 22 years ago yeah are you wearing your pajamas uh, no, I'm not. I'm wearing a. I'm just wearing a nice sunspell top. <laughs> we're, we're two hours ahead of you, so I'm hoping he isn't. I've been out and but, about. I've been to the cathedral. I've done all the old town. I've done everything this morning. I've been a good tourist. In your pajamas. In my pajamas. Yes. I mean, that's the thing actually that we've found ourselves doing, which we love, which is wherever we go, we try and find out about the city, the tourism. You know, we try and visit wherever local you places. go. You wear your pajamas. Wherever. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Should I take this off? Is it, is it off putting? I mean, it's, not, it's really not. No, no, leave it on, mate. Leave it on. Please leave it on. <laughs> For those just listening, it's, it's a pair of pajamas he's actually wearing. Listen, I'm trying to get what? to a point that I'm interested in, right? God, Brian, what were you saying? We what? obviously know, you know, you have, you're vegetarian. There's a lot of activism in your life. Are there rules about what people are allowed to have backstage? You know, because the one thing that upsets me is the proliferation of plastic bottles that appear behind every single, at every single gig we ever do. Um, yeah. Uh, do you have rules in advance uh, for what the crew can eat and what everyone can well, drink Well, I mean, my tour is, 
pretty much plastic free. We, 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 a long time ago, we stopped that and we have filtered water everywhere. And um, the catering is all vegetarian. And so if ever, everyone gets per diem anyway, so if they want to go get a burger, they can't, you know. Those are the only two things that they're sort of prescribed to the, the ethos that you were talking about. But there's no rules, really. It's just everyone, every man for himself. You know what it's like. Yeah. We're on the yeah. road. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the new album, Brian. Cause As he cackles. <laughs> we have to talk about the new album because how you wrote it is interesting. I, I actually ended up doing my, my only new solo album in lockdown, you know, because for me, lockdown became, you know, I had to find creativity in it. And I know that's how you, you approach this new one. Take us through that. I honestly think uh, I would have done it anyway. Uh, it's just that it was the perfect opportunity to just unravel everything that I had sort of stored up in the last year or two before that and empty all the pieces of paper out of my coat pockets that have scribbles on them and start making songs. And I put together a board and I started writing all the, the song titles that I had up on the board. And every day I would sit with my engineer, Hayden, who's sitting here right here. Oh, hi, Hayden. And... And we would we would work on work on songs like what we're doing right now. So I, I everywhere I go, I have the studio set up, and we just work on songs in the daytime. But you were playing everything yourself, weren't you? And you're, um, I mean, because do you like like yeah. to work at the early stage? How soon do you like to take stuff to the band? Usually. Well, I couldn't find a bass player, so you know. Yeah, and I was using your bass anyway. Thanks for letting. <laughs> yeah. By the way, thanks for lending me your bass. Very... You, you bet. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I've I've always sort of dabbled in doing bits and bobs of my own, you know, like doing all this, the, the tracks. But this time there was no way of getting the band in the room. So I just bought a drum kit and started making messing around. So we had this we had this thing. So we I would put down a, tr a track on the drums and then come back in. I look at Hayden over here and I say, would Bonham have done that? He'd go, no. <laughs> That's it. All right, go back in again. So the whole thing was like, would Bonham have done that? And that's that's how <laughs> that's how I try to get the drum track. That's that's quite a bar to set yourself, though, isn't? It? <laughs> well, you, like, you know, if you're going to set Jeff a bar, would Jeff Beck have done best. that? Like, no, no. <laughs> it, it's just to make it as powerful and as rocking as possible. Yeah. Listen, Brian, I can't think of anyone in the world further from the personality of John Bonham than yourself. <laughs> no, no, we, it was it was just. It was just whether or not it was rocking enough. And well, it, it's so, interesting because I think the drums on this album, they reminded me, the sound reminded me a lot of, of the of the early stuff from your, you know, of Reckless and, and the sound on that. Really? Oh, that's kind. Well, I mean, it was just all done in a bedroom. Amazing. There's a lot of nonsense talked about drum sounds and always has been, I reckon. It's that, you know, jump, but yeah. bottoms... Bottom's most legendary drum sound was just in the hallway at Headley Grange. You know, it wasn't at Olympic. That's right. Or, you know. It was actually, it was the bottom of a staircase, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. You work a lot with other people. You co-write. I mean, I'm, I'm a solo songwriter. I find it more difficult to write with other people. And in the situation you were in, how did you find that same inspiration? These are, there are two questions here. There's one about that with this album but also about how you approach songwriting with other people generally. Well, I kind of have friends that I, like, for example, Jim Vance, who I've worked with my entire life. And so we finished doing Pretty Woman the Musical together. And there was a bunch of ideas left over from that that either got cut by the director or they weren't appropriate 
musically. So I thought, you know, never one to uh, give up a good song. I just would rework them. And that was one aspect of it. And then, then there was working with Mutt Lang, who I love working with. We would just do that by email. I would, I would send a chorus to him or a, something, an idea for a song, and then he'd send back what he thought would go with it. And in the past, I've, I did the same thing with, with Ed Sheeran once um, for Shine a Light, oh, yeah, yeah. where I, I sent him a, a chorus for the song, and he sent me back a verse. And I was like, oh, that works. Great song. So I don't care where the idea comes from. It's the best idea wins. Do, do you ever write on your own, Brian? I do, but I find that I get a little bit bored with just doing it on my own. So I send it off to somebody. I've got a, I've got a really good chorus right now for a song, and I'm trying to decide what to do with it. So do I finish it myself or nah, I'll give it, I'll give it someone else to, to mess around with, you know, because I, one of the joys I had back in the nineties was working with Michael Kamen oh. and, and it was wonderful because he would come up with musical ideas that I would never have come up with and vice versa. So I think that, you know, obviously guy, you know, I knew, Michael, yeah, well, right? we both worked on a film together with him, the Don Juan de Marco movie. Oh, did you play bass on that? I played guitar on that. But oh, when he, wanted, he, wanted, he wanted everyone he knew to, to that beautiful line, that da 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 He wanted, he, he had this idea of having mass guitars doing it, mass Spanish guitars. And he kind of called up right. every guitarist he knew and he thought that wasn't enough people. So then he started calling him so that I ended up coming in. It was great. Which, wow. I remember you being in the studio at Whitfield Street a couple of times. So, I mean, he, he, he was wonderful. And so pushing your boundaries is what it's about. Mm-hmm. Gary, it's about it's about not coming up with what you usually come up with. It's about coming up with something that you wouldn't ordinarily come up with, and that's what either pushes you or makes it makes a song more interesting. If I could come up with it, great, but I usually don't. I usually I, come up with what I come up with, and then let's see what someone else is, comes up. Uh, with. Is part of it editorial, Brian? I mean, when I I said just the thing of you're writing something on your own, and it's just kind of, is this any good? Uh, just th- and having someone else in the room to kind of confirm that what you're doing is working and is right. Is that, is that in any way part of it? You think I wouldn't give somebody an idea of a song, but I didn't think it was any good. No, true, you know, like I, I, yeah. I, I would usually say, right. I think, I think this is a good idea. And way back just before I made the album, waking up the neighbors, I'd written a whole album of songs and I started working with Mott and I played Mutt the songs, thinking that Mutt was going to produce them. And Mutt looked at me and said, well, you know, that's nice. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, I, I think I think he could do better. I say, okay, what do you want to do? He goes, start again. Mm-hmm. And so we scrapped an entire record wow. and took pieces of it and rewrote the songs and made it up Waking Up the Neighbors. So another point actually is being not precious about your songs, not precious about your ideas. And that's when I learned to actually not be precious about little things you come up with or the songs you come up with that, you know what, it could be better. And so make it better. I think the there's something else going on here as well, because for me, as a songwriter, that's how I see myself. I see myself primarily as a songwriter. Even if I'm doing a solo album, you are also a singer, a major singer. So it's all about what can be created for you to present yourself as, as, as vocally and for you to enjoy that vocally. You might be right, actually. You know, you enjoy singing and you, yeah. uh, and, it's, and it's, a, it's an incredible tool. And if you were not a songwriter, it would still be something you could be very successful at. And, and so sometimes you might be interested, what are other people going to deliver to me to give me an opportunity to, to, 
to project myself. I've never thought that, but you're right. There's something in it to that. Because I mean, we'll, we'll get on a bit more maybe later to, about Michael came in. I worked with Michael, obviously, he did the uh, theme music for the Craze movie. And, oh, uh, cool. and he also, uh, he produced the last sort of Spandau Ballet track back in 1990. I'll tell you a funny story about Michael was, you know, and just for those people that don't know Michael, Michael was a film composer. I remember when we did Don Juan de Marco, he called me up very late one night. It was about 11, 11.30 something. And he said, did I wake you? I said, no. He said, um, I've got a problem. I said, well, what is it? He says, well, the director doesn't like what I've written for this film. And I just wondered if you would come over and have a listen to it. I said, sure, I'll, I'll come over tomorrow. He goes, no, could, could you come over now? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, sure, okay. So I got in my car and I drove over to Notting Hill. And he sat me down. By this time, it's midnight. And you know, have you ever been to Michael's place? Did you ever go to his little studio there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, many, many times. Yeah, many so late he'd, nights. He'd, he'd have, yeah, so you know what it's like. And you can imagine the scene. And he's, he's, you know, he's Michael. And um, he plays me this piece of music, which was... And after I, I listened to it, I went, Michael, I think that could be one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. What else do you have? And he, then he played me the da da And I said, what if you put those two pieces of music together and make one piece of music? And he went, what a good idea. And so we did that. And then we wrote that song together. Wow. Um, and, and, then the, and then the director was happy and everyone went home happy. But it was just one of those sort of things that, that uh, a late night session at Michael's he needed to hear the confidence that his, his music was good yeah yeah and i'm like michael michael not only is this good this is amazing you know you've done incredible writing so i could never have written that ever you know i think it's right. foolish to go back and to try and do this chronologically we're talking about michael now let's be more organic i think you know obviously your first connection with michael is on everything i do um, yes and which is obviously to this day still has the record for the for the longest amount of weeks at number one when singles meant something. Yeah, it was seventeen years. It was at number one, I believe, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, seven, yeah. It's still actually yeah. it's still number one. <laughs> um, I, it's actually it had a it was a sort of slight personal thing for me as well because I, I after that film which I saw endlessly on the video of Robin Hood and and Kevin Costner, I ended up working with Kevin after that on uh, on the Bodyguard, and uh, he came to life before my eyes after seeing him endlessly oh, nice. on top of the pops. But but the writing of that song I'm interested in, because obviously it came originally from Michael's orchestral ideas, right? Yes. So what happened was I was sent a, a cassette tape. You remember them? Oh, yeah. Of 45 minutes of score. And we were in the process of finishing up Waking Up the Neighbors album. And there was a guy called David Kirschenbaum, who was a producer, and he had... He'd obviously sent it out to a few people and sent it to me as well. And I sat down with Mutt and we listened to it. And there was one section in the score that went... And Mutt said, oh, that's nice. And I said, yeah. And then what we did, instead of... If you listen to the, to the song, you'll notice that we don't get in the way of that melody. It's a da 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 look into my da 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 you will see. So it's it's a counterpoint. Mm -hmm. And that worked beautifully. And then and then we sat down and we wrote the rest of the song. But it was based around that theme. 
and the middle eight and all that happened. We sat, we were up in Wilston. We we're in Battery Studios. Batteries. Oh yeah, yeah, Wilson Lane. Yeah, yeah, Wilson Lane. Yeah, and we were up there in the back of the in the back of the studio, uh, and the, the song literally from the moment we started it to the completing the whole arrangement was about forty five minutes. It just just happened. Because after after that had been a hit for quite a while. I because I remember I went to see the film in Australia and it had been out for a while then, and. Uh, key points in the film are the great romantic moments in the film that theme happens and it's so brilliant such a brilliant bit of subliminal pl- placing that you come out of that film and if you, you're going to have to buy that record you can't not yeah well, there, there is a little bit of a backstory to it is that no one really liked the song um, at, at the film company at the time wow and they tried to get me they tried to get me to, to change the song title to I'll Die For You and, and I said nah I'm not changing anything. You don't like it too bad. <laughs> if you go see the film, you'll notice that the song doesn't actually appear until after this gigantic, massive score happens yeah. and the Dolby sign starts to come up and it oh. says the end. <laughs> but then the song comes in. So like, it, the, they weren't happy with it. They were very happy with what happened with it after. No, what, what, what do you think is the key to the magic of that song? Um, Mutt said to me when he listened to that little snippet, he said, that is a universal melody. I, yeah. I, and I, I agree. I think Michael was, Michael was very good at writing themes that were quite universal. I think the, and this is slightly technical for some of our listeners, maybe, but I think it's that pedaled bass note when it goes to the fourth chord or the fifth chord. When you go from C. Yeah, that that's technical for our listeners, F. all right. And, yeah, no, and the I bass just the stays. Chord, on. I think it was- yeah, when it pedals the bass, that's the one. And I no, it's just so beautifully romantic, and it doesn't feel conventional. I and, and I and I guess you know that's the skill of Mutt as well, because Mutt has that great musicality, doesn't he? That he, he is very very clever, and he did a very good job of producing that track, as he does many many tracks. But I mean, he just understood what he understood everything about what was necessary to make that song what it is, and including the the moments where I hit the high notes, you know, all the, the crescendo of, of music that happens and, you know, it, it happens a couple of times. And yeah. Um, yeah, so who knows what the secret is, but I mean, it's still number one. It still is number one. It's, yeah, it's, it's now yeah, it's 47 years, I believe it's been number one. <laughs> it's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. But Brian, Brian Mutt, Mutt is famous. I remember being, for, for how long he takes, I remember being yeah. uh, down in, in, in Dublin when, when Def Leppard were making their, uh, album in in the mid '80s with Mark, and it, it had already been going for about two years. I'm very protective about him because I don't believe that he's doing it because he wants to spend two years on a record. He did it because he wanted the best songs to be on the album, and he want and he would have done it for me. He would have done it for anybody he worked with. It was never ever a moment of like, that's so I will listen to that one slide. No way, nothing slides. You get the best on every single song. And that's it. And you work and you work and you work until you get the best. But to work, to go back, I'm sorry, we, you know, chronology is out the window here because you, you've obviously, you're always used to that super high end audio thing because you started working with Bob Clearmountain very early in your career, didn't you? It's true. You know, Bob's um, as posh as I, it gets as well. You know, he's. Yeah, Bob's a bit of a punk rocker. Um, he and, is, but his records and, don't sound like that. Well, I was attracted to Bob's sound from a record that he did with Jim Carroll back in the late 70s, early 80s, called The City Drops Into the Night. Do you know that song? No, I don't. no. 
It's really, really good. And and the drum sound was like really good. I thought, oh, and I called up Kirsten, the guy actually uh, who was um, the guy that introduced me to Michael. And I said, who made this record? And he said, oh, I know the guy that made this. His name is Bob Clearmount. He's a young engineer out of New York. And Bob had just also remixed the Stones' Miss You. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, we met and it was like, let's make a record. My early records were kind of punk influenced as well in, in the sense that they were quite raucous. And, mm-hmm. But I would still do the odd ballad because I like a ballad. Well, yes, and you're very good. Uh, that's, that's actually something we wanted to get to because when you appeared on the scene, you were very much, I certainly very much saw you as a sort of new wave act in the way that it was just, you know, authentic, real rock and roll. In the same way as I guess I put in the same ballpark as like Tom Petty or someone like that. Yeah, the cars. I would, yeah, I love, yeah. the, you know, the Pretenders, Pretenders, yeah. the Cars, all those bands back then. Those are the records I was listening to. Yeah. Because you always trumpet sort of much more traditional rock and roll stuff as where as your grounding, though, don't you? Almost rockabilly at times. <laughs> Almost rockabilly at times. Yes, I mean, I, I, mean, I love rockabilly music. But that's what's so great but about the, those, the, those early records of yours is that the fact. What What's interesting is, is how people didn't really become aware of the, this sort of sonically until later on. But you were making just great classic sounding rock and roll records, which means that they haven't dated. You know, they still sound great. I think there there are moments in some of the songs where you hear the DX7 come through and you think... Well, that, that, that's um, what I would have thought Into the Fire is kind of... that. That's the first time you're making something that sounds like his record. That's right. And I think that's where that fell down a bit for you. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And and uh, it, it was... Jim had discovered this keyboard called the Emulator and it was full of massive samples of things. So even if the song was crap, it sounded amazing because the drum sounds were so good. Mm-hmm. And... So we got, I think we got bewitched by by the magic of synthesizers. Yeah, no, you did. There's um, big bass synths and that drum sound. The real nucleus of good records is a good song, play with the band. Everyone looks at each other when you finish a song and you go, yeah. I felt great. Yeah. You know? It's interesting, and, though, what, and, that in that sense, Into the Fire gave you a lesson in what should be your own philosophy for the rest of your career, really. Yes and no. I went straight from Into the Fire into working with, with Mutt, which was very much about working on the fair light and samplers and all this stuff, which I'd never, ever used. It was just completely foreign to me. You know, I, I would write 10 songs, go in the studio with the band, spend five days cutting tracks, mix it. When the first album was done in two weeks, I couldn't imagine spending two weeks on an album now. Two weeks on a snare sound. <laughs> no, two, two weeks on a song. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Things have changed. I mean, mind you, I would have been much more prepared going into a studio then than I am now. Because now what I do is I sit in hotel rooms or wherever I am and I continue to craft. And then it's not like making demos because demos, the demos, there's no point making a demo anymore. No, you exactly. just make, you make your master. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Because whatever you start with is what is what you can take with you. That's the, everything's changed so much. Yeah. yeah. So there isn't that excuse of, um, yeah, it's just not quite got the thing the demo had. <laughs> it is a demo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ryan, I want to I, I want to talk about your relationship with with Jim Balance and how it began, really, because I mean, obviously, there's been moments when you and Jim have separated, and obviously, when you began the Mutt Langer connection. Jim and I continued to work together with Mutt. We used some songs and sort of taken out of my album that didn't come out because those songs ended up being sort of regurgitated into different songs. 
But how did you come into each other's lives, I think, is the question yeah. I'm asking. Oh, we actually met in a music shop. I was just 18, and he was talking to this cellist who I thought was quite fanciful. And he was talking to her, and I went up, and I knew her, and I said, hi, Ali, how you doing? She goes, oh, this is Jim Valance. And I was like, oh, Jim. And in the conversation, he just said, well, look, do you want to get together and have a cup of tea sometime? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. I walked out of that shop and went, great. I knew something was going to happen. I already liked what Jim had been doing. When we were on the studio scene, there was a keyboard player called Robbie King, who was an amazing organist and used to hire me for sessions. And I was sort of beginning to enter into the, the world of being a background vocalist because I, I didn't have anything else going on. Oh, you're incredibly young, though, aren't you? Yeah, I started, doing, I started doing studio work when I was about 15 or 16. That's amazing. Yeah, but I just put myself forward all the time got a funny story but i remember one of the first sessions i ever did the the pianist handed me a chart with four singers and he went okay two three and in with the song and it goes like this and, and, and it finished and i said he said look at me and he said do you, do you know the melody i said i do now and and then he said do you want the third or the fifth uh oh, do the third right so then i would learn from hearing what he'd done because i can't read music yeah, join the club. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Would you say your relationship with him is sort of similar to Elton and Bernie? Well, not really, because we both write lyrics That's, and we both yeah. write music. But that thing so, of just being, um, the, you'll go off somewhere else, but it's always, it's sort of always there. I love Jim. Mm. He's my brother. You know, I mean, I can count on Jim. You know, it's like, I, I know that if I said to him today, I got a song, you know, it's got to be about the rock, the rock and tours. Tomorrow morning, we'd have a song about it. Can't wait yeah. to hear it. But as it developed, and obviously, you know, you went through those first couple of albums. What was it that that changed that that helped you to create, you know, Reckless as as a, as a as such a key part of your career? I mean, you know, I still would say that you know, Run to You. I remember when it came out in the eighties, and I was recording with Spandau Ballet down in Germany, and we all heard it, and we went, "My God, this is the template for the for the future of of rock music." In the, at the, at the huh. it sounded well, that's so very kind. I think what I figured out was that you can't sit in the studio all the time. You've got to go play live. Mm -hmm. And so I used to take my, after my first album, which did nothing, I just went out and took my songs and played them in clubs and figured out tempo, what was working, breakdowns, you know, what lyrics were working. Which, and, and this, when it came into working with Clear Mountain, I had a very concise idea already of how I wanted to sound. It was just about getting getting the sound hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
we wanted to pick up uh, where we left off, really, with the Reckless album. I, I wondered about Heaven, because Heaven nearly never made Reckless, did it? And, and it, I think it's your, it was your first song for a movie. The story was it was written for a film that was about a male stripper, and I never really wanted to... Um, once, once I saw the film, I was like, oh, what? And so I just didn't really want to publicize it. But they, they put out a soundtrack album for it and everything. And even though I wouldn't let them release it as a single from the soundtrack, the song just kept getting picked up and people started playing it everywhere. So when it came time for Reckless, I thought I'll save it for the album because putting it on the album made more sense than advertising a dodgy soundtrack. So that's the story. But, but it was interesting that the movie inspired you in a way because, or was it the other way around? Did you have that song and then you thought you'd deliver? It was written for the film. And yet it was a, it was a massive change in your career. Yeah, so because Reckless is where everything went kind of properly global, isn't it? Would you say? Or... Um, it went um, to the to England. <laughs> For, so because we'd had a. Uh... That's what I meant. Properly global, England. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heaven, heaven wasn't a hit in the UK. Um, it was only a hit really in America and Canada at the time, and it's still has never been really a chart hit anywhere. Um, other than that. But that's quite extraordinary because we look at those songs as being complete smash hit classics. And yet that they're sort of ones that people have gone back and discovered after maybe, you know, waking up the neighbours. Yeah, Summer 69 wasn't a hit anywhere other than America and Canada at the time. I actually wrote a song at the time with Jim. It was called I Can't Get My Songs on the BBC. And the song goes... Uh, I don't know what Sir Lou Grade's got against me. I can't get my songs on the BBC. <laughs> Brilliant. That could have been The Clash. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Guy, you wanted to talk about the, the duets and obviously the big duet. Yeah, because, because which, is a, which is a great aspect of you, Brian. You've done so many duets. And that's, is that something that, was that something that you, you consciously wanted to do or people just came to you? Or? They all sort of happened quite organically. The Tina one I, I went for and wanted to work with her. I'm trying to think what the next one was. Um, Barbara Streisand, maybe? Bonnie Wright, oh, right. yeah. Bonnie asked me to sing on her show. Oh, I love Bonnie. <laughs> Man. Um, She's oh, amazing. So, amazing so good. And then uh, David Foster asked me to, to do the Barbara Streisand one. And the song wasn't there. I, I said, but you know what? Send me the music and I'll see if I can write a song around it. And they sent me the score by Marvin Hamlish, the great Marvin Hamlish. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, wow. There's a name. And I sat down with Mutt and we rewrote the song. I sent it in and didn't hear anything. And then about a month later, I get a call and Barbara comes on. She says, what'd you do to my song? I said, oh my God. <laughs> I rewrote it. She goes, I like it. <laughs> so, was that that must have been a bit of a moment before she said that i mean i wasn't gonna take offense if she didn't like it just it was just a punt you know just to see if it could be better but did you get to meet marvin i did um what did i went to work with marvin and uh it was one of the best experiences because we went to the sony studios in los angeles to record the strings for the song and marvin was to my great surprise quite a comic in that way, that sort of New York Jewish comedy. So he'd get up in front of the, you know, 60 piece orchestra 
and sort of open up the score and say, yeah, good morning, everybody. Um, did you hear about the, you know, the snake and the squirrel? And then he start telling jokes to everybody. Oh, just so funny. And I thought, you know, when's the session going to happen? Because he just kept rattling off all these jokes. And then, and then it was like tap, tap with the baton and off we went and then record the strings. It was just such a sweet, such a sweet memory. The thing with you, do you have an idea for a song and think, oh my God, this needs to be two people. This needs to be two points of view or, or is it more, I want to do a duet. I'm going to tailor a song to that. Oh, I see. No, I never really think about what well, with the Barbara. When I did think about it, I, I wanted it to be like a conversation. I really wanted it to, to have that dialogue between two, two, two people. And I did another one with Sarah McLaughlin, which was very similar for, for oh, the wow. spirit soundtrack, which again was kind of like, Two, two people with two different thoughts. That's called Don't Let Go. That's such a beautiful song, too. I don't know if you've heard that or not. Yeah, that was a big album for you, wasn't it? Uh, sort of spiritually, you felt that was a big album for you. It, it right? was, yeah. I mean, working with Jeffrey Katzenberg from DreamWorks was, it just changed everything for me. What was it that you need? Why did you feel that you needed something to come along and change your life? I didn't. But, you know, the universe gives at certain times. And when they came to see me about in the f- film for DreamWorks, I didn't quite believe it because I thought it was an audition. I went along thinking that I was going to be stood in the lineup with a bunch of actors, and I've been there. <laughs> when, I, when I when I got to the, the theater, I said, oh, "Where's everybody else?" Katzenberg looks at me and says, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Well, where's everybody else that you were going to audition today?" He goes, "He says, man, I came here to see you," and I was at a point where I didn't really know what I was doing next and. There was all kinds of other things that were happening. And I said, oh, I, I said, well, he says, come on, let's go watch the movie. And so we, it was all done in pencil sketch. It was the last animated film that was done by with hand drawing. Wow. And we, we sat down and we watched these sketches. And I said, wow, this is incredible. He says, I want you to be the voice of the horse. I said, wow, okay. I said, as long as it's not as the only part of the horse you want me to be. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so... We, I spent a year working with Hans Zimmer, uh, doing the set. Ah, oh, Hans, yeah. Yeah, I was. It was. It was a wonderful experience, and it, because it was so much fun, I, uh, I, I was able just to carry on. But I mean, it, I was at a, literally at a point where I thought, ah, oh, just what am I, what am I doing next? And that was the perfect thing. And do you think the uh, your your work in movies informed you? in how to approach a musical when you're working on Pretty Woman? Or is it a different ball game entirely? Anything I knew about songwriting, I had to throw out the window when I came to working on the musical because I'm just really talking about from a lyrical perspective. You can think you've nailed it and you you walk into the room and every day when, literally it was an everyday thing, every day you'd walk in and you'd have to uh, present what your song was for whatever the scene was that the director wanted and there'd be a panel of you know 10 people and so you'd say okay well let's demo disclaimer here comes the song and you'd play the song and the writer would say oh that's that's great I really like that and, and then someone else would say I don't know um, I like the I, I like the um, I like the, the third line and you sort of look at it you know, Jim and I would look at each other like what um, and so after a while, I, got, I became really, you know, blasé to the criticism. I just thought, well, okay, we'll just write something else. And so we would just go back and so we'd have our 11 o'clock meeting, do, do a, a song presentation, and then go back and sit in my tiny little 
hotel room at, in, on 44th Street and just write another song or rewrite that one. It was exasperating in some respects because I, I don't know sometimes whether they knew what they wanted or they just didn't know if they liked that or if the direction musically might have been suitable for someone else but not for that particular group you know and because everyone was allowed to have a say it would just it would just take time but that's the thing with musicals isn't it it is ultimately because gary and i've written musicals together it's, it's the ultimate kind of collaborative art form but it's it's kind of different in that there's just the guy from the record company going oh i don't like this just because he doesn't like it it's kind of people will have a, a valid reason for why it doesn't fit in with the bit that they need to make work yeah it's sort of subjective in the sense that if you're working with somebody that is like-minded in what you're doing then it becomes easier however if you're working with someone that isn't in your world and you're trying to present them or convince them of this then it's a little more difficult you know what i'm saying there's yeah. a there's a famous sundown quote though isn't it that a, a musical is never written it's always rewritten it's rewritten yeah which which sort of sums that up because you've got to with, lyrically you've got to take your character from A to B haven't you there's it's got to be a dramatic flow within the song and that's very different that's, that's pop songs yeah because exactly pop you've songs, got to start somewhere and end somewhere else haven't you somewhere pop, yeah, there's no room for metaphors at all yeah and pop songs tend yeah. to be a sort of snapshot of something where where a musical song you know it has to have drama that's why Sorry. I'm talking to you guys you were happy with in the end with what what the sort of the way the process worked for you and the yes. final. Stage I actually really enjoyed the whole thing. I, I mean, even though sometimes you think, "Wow, that's too bad," because that was a good song. Um, I just ended up any songs that got rejected. I ended up recording them anyway. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you have that great other outlet, don't you? Because that's the thing with musicals, isn't it? It's kill your darlings. You have to be prepared to lose your favorite song at any. Oh, I hate that expression, killing your darlings. I just can't. <laughs> no, but you know, in, in a way, it's true. You know. Brian, there's, there, I mean, there's. I know we haven't got much time. There's so much other because. I wanted to sort of touch briefly on your photography because you've got a CV as a photographer, which any photographer who'd literally never done anything else would be perfectly happy to have, I would have thought. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's just look at the people you photograph. I was wondering how that started. Is was, was I, I presume you, you, is, it was always an interest yeah, of yours? Yeah, it was always an interest of mine. And I started kind of started very sort of simply on tour taking pictures and on, on the in the studio and sort of documenting work being the ultimate sort of fly on the wall and from there and and stupidly i never published my pictures back in on the early records because i i just thought that i wasn't you know uh, you can't be you can't be a photographer you know you have to get a real photographer. <laughs> uh, but looking back on some of my pictures, I was thinking, why didn't I publish these? They're so much better than what we ended up using. And and you ended up doing album covers for other people? I have done, yeah. Didn't, did yeah. you? Know? <laughs> yeah. I have done. Um, in fact, most recently, I did Ramstein's album cover. Oh, man, I saw that on your Instagram. It's fantastic. <laughs> I was, I mean, it's the second time I've worked with them. And it was it was so it was so fun to to do it because i mean first of all i love being in berlin but i also love the band i was very lucky to have got it <laughs> but i have to ask how was the queen which one <laughs> there's been so many <laughs> elizabeth the second how i mean you do you get to photograph her that's quite an extraordinary yeah, well, thing to i was to do. that's like cecil b it was very very nice to have got that i was great friends with Joseph Karsh, who's a Canadian photographer, and 
I went to see his exhibition at Canada House uh, sometime in the late 1999 or something like that, 1990s. And he said, oh, I want you to meet my friend from Camera Press. Because Karsh liked my pictures, even though he hadn't seen very many. He, li- he liked what I was doing. And he said, I want you to meet Richard from Camera Press. And, and, and he said, oh, I, I like what you've done recently. Would you like to join Camera Press? I said, yeah, sure. And then about a year later, he phoned me and said, what are you doing on Wednesday? I said, oh, I don't know, nothing really. He says, would you like to photograph the Queen? I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. I said, but where? He says, well, it's at her house. Wh- which house? This is Buckingham Palace. And you can see the eyes rolling. Anyway, I, yeah, it was a good, very good experience. And, and I photographed Philip as well, Prince Philip. Amazing. Fantastic. But Brian, I, I, did a, I did a show with you back in 87. I, I, we all got up on stage with George Harrison, Ringo Starr. I think we kind of took it for granted at the time that we were playing on stage with Beatles. Um, it, was, it was an amazing sort of, you know, Phil Collins, Eric Clapton. It was at the Prince's Trust in Wembley uh, in front of the uh, Prince of Wales. Um, your work in charity is, is, is so vast. It, and what, what I just wanted to say is that what's interesting is you've never, dis- you, you do so much and yet you don't try and write songs about these subjects, you know, maybe like a Bono would. What you do, I think, is, is you seem to go to various countries like India or wherever you are and you deliver joy. <laughs> but underneath are what you believe in, is what you believe in, the statements that you want to make. Thank you. I, I don't really, I don't talk about it very much. I have a little foundation and it sort of bumbles along and most of the proceeds from my photography go to it. Uh, it's like helping people help people. It's, it's part of it that, you know, we're in such a fortunate situation and we, you know, we get to do the job that, that is a dream job and we love doing that. And there's an element of, don't get me, I, I don't want you to misunderstand me, but is there an element of guilt that we have about how lucky we are that makes us make all the more effort in things that are altruistic? Or is it purely that we're in a great position and therefore we should be doing that? Well, I think when it comes to musicians, we what is the moment you get anywhere, people will start knocking on your door and asking you to be part of things. And so it's at that point you have to decide you know, what you want to do. If you want to support this and if you don't, because there are so many things you can support and there might be something that touches your heart and you think, yeah, I'm going to, do that because it, it's part of it. I, I know someone that had that or my friend was affected by it or you know there or I I've been to a country that had that and I I relate to it so you you'll end up finding somewhere inside of you that there's something that connects you to to the things you get asked to do I don't know that if you didn't become well known that it would happen so frequently but that's a fair point that's a very fair point that that's a, it's a two-way thing isn't it yeah kind of Brian, we're going to let you go, but I can't let you go without mentioning the fact that that because of you, I met my wife 22 years ago, and we have three children. Oh, we, you, you, she, Lauren was uh, helping you style some photographs, That's right. um, and, and there was a party at the Saatchi Gallery. Oh wow! Where you were auctioning these pictures off for charity. And I met her. Oh, that's so sweet, man. I'm, I do remember that now. I, I do remember, um, and, and congratulations. Brian, I can't help but notice that your name is actually Brian Guy Adams. And my name is Guy Adam. 
And the reason, <laughs> and the reason I was called that is because my dad was a songwriter and actor. And as we, you know, it's we know Pratt is a pretty unfortunate surname. <laughs> and when I was born, my mum thought, well, you know, he might want to go into showbiz. So she gave me a middle name that would work as a as a surname. So I could have been Guy Adams. Well, that's a good name. I was named because I was born on 5th of November. The Brian comes from my father. Uh, he wanted to name me after um, Sir Brian Horlicks, which is a, 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 who was a British general. So that's... Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my dad was born on the 5th of, of, of November too. So we never even touched on your peripatetic childhood and your... Well, it's too late now, it's Guy, isn't it's it? It's too really? late now, I know. I'm, guy, I want it because it's, you know. Guy, get your pyjamas out. Yes. And go and have a walk, okay? <laughs> enjoy, enjoy the rest of your tour, Brian. Guys, thank you so much. I hope to see you soon. All right. Lots of love. back, man. Yeah. See you later. Thank you so Bye-bye. Much. Well, that was lovely, wasn't it? Very nice of all three of us, I thought, to break with our tour schedule and do this podcast. it's it's absolutely true i mean we're all on quite fierce schedules here we are we are it's quite tricky but we're desperately fishing for sympathy from our audience now aren't we yeah so as if you're listening to this on sunday when in when our when our podcast normally gets uh, delivered to you um we are in budapest oh Uh, uh, in the meantime we are going to be going down to um lithuania Yes, the last, the last of the Baltic states, Baltic states. Yeah, these are beautiful cities, Riga, uh, Tallinn. I mean, just stunning stuff that wouldn't be on my list normally as a place to visit. But, but oh my God, I'm going to be telling people to come. It's true. Yeah, you should check our Instagram feeds for like fabulously boring tourist photos. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> lots of pictures of guy in multiple scarves. Multiple scarves. See you next week, right. won't we? We will see you next week. Yeah, hopefully we're, we're still we're still trudging away, trying to find people. We're not trying to find people, but trying to find time to do the people that we do find. Yes. So it's good night from me. And it's yes. good night from everybody in this beautiful city of Reading. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.